Well, and um, oh boy, I had a thought and it was great. <laughs> it was like the greatest thought that I've ever had in my entire life. Um, no, you're, oh, what were you talking about? Star Wars. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Greetings, and thank you for listening to this edition of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for the website Where Peter Is. My name is Mike Lewis, and I'm the managing editor of wherepeteris.com. In this edition, I continue my conversation with theologian Adam Rasmussen and D.W. Lafferty. In the last episode, we spoke about the baptism validity controversy especially as it played out in the Archdiocese of Detroit. This time, we expand our discussion to various forms of Catholic extremism that have cropped up, particularly online and in resistance to Pope Francis. But first, please listen to this message. Before we begin this episode of Peter's Field Hospital, I would like to make a special request. If you appreciate our work at Where Peter Is, and you've gotten something out of our articles and podcasts, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that enables fans or patrons to make a monthly contribution to support content creators. Running Where Peter Is is not free. Our apostolate has grown to the point where I have begun to work on it full time. If we are going to succeed, we need your help. If you would like to support our work on Patreon, please click on one of the links to our Patreon page or on the button on the right-hand column of wherepeteris.com. Thank you very much for your generosity. We can't do it without you. I, I think one of the things that makes Catholic fundamentalism unique is the sense that our ecclesiology and our doctrines require the hierarchy. And since Vatican II, especially, probably going back before that, like addressing the ultramontanes, for example, there's, a, there's an ecclesiology that we, we have canon laws that say you have to obey your bishop in these things. You have to assent to the Pope's teachings on these issues. And so we've got this weird sense of, David, in one of your pieces, you called it like the Popeless Church of Tradition, right? Like, how yeah. is that even possible in a Catholic in the Catholic Church? So the New Integralists, right? They they want I don't know what the right term is, but they want a society that's subservient to the Pope. But it seems that the Pope is not playing ball, or it seems that in these circumstances, they want they have an authoritarian mentality. They want the authoritarian leader, yet the duly elected person who could possibly fill that role isn't playing that game with them. So, I mean, I kind of see this cognitive dissonance going on, and maybe this is a way that we can enter into this other topic, because I see that there's a lot of desperation. I think a lot of people recognize this 
this dissonance. Here, I want a strict Catholic church where everybody follows the rules, but the rule makers are pushing back against the rules that I want them to enforce. And I think in a lot of cases, you wind up with some really angry people. And I, but I think that the tensions, especially in the United States, and especially since Francis became Pope, now the way I see it is, I think that early on, well, maybe not early on. Early on, I think they were trying to put the square peg into the round hole. They were trying to make apologias for Francis. They were trying to say, oh, this can be squared with orthodoxy, yada, yada, yada. And even after Amoris Laetitia came out, I think that there were some people who still would say things like, well, it can be reconciled with orthodoxy, but, you know, then the Buenos Aires document came out, right? And shortly thereafter, before it was promulgated magisterially, but it had Pope Francis's approval on it, that's what prompted, or that seemed to be the final straw before the dubia was submitted to him. And I think at that point, the seeds were being sown. And because I follow this set of contest rhetoric, I, under, I know their argumentation, I know their approach. I think that there was a movement afoot to find a theological reason to, I mean, they concede that the Pope can't be deposed but they would say that he self-abdicated through heresy. I think that there was definitely an agenda. If he doesn't straighten out, we're going we're gonna to rally all the true Catholics behind us, and we're going to get him out of office. That didn't work, because frankly, most Catholics have never even heard of a dubia or a Morris Laetitia, or they just love the Pope, and he smiles, and he waves. Then. Their second attempt was in 2018, and the person who was behind that was Archbishop Vigano. His attack did much greater damage against Pope Francis's papacy, and the reason why was not because of this theological stuff or the gay lavender mafia and, and all of the homophobic terminology that he and accusations that he threw in there. It was because he accused Pope Francis of promoting someone that he knew to be a sexual abuser. People do care about that. And because he put Pope Francis at the middle of that accusation, even though by the time Francis became Pope, McCarrick had been re retired for a long time, even though within three or four days, most of the things that he said were proven to be either inaccurate or untrue or misstatements fell apart. People, people within the church, people within Catholic media who didn't like Francis were promoting him. And on the secular side, where I think the goodwill that Pope Francis had built up over time was destroyed. And so he became what Austin Ivory calls the wounded shepherd, right? Because he basically he's getting it from all sides. Where Peter is was just a little startup blog in the middle of that trying to figure things out. Francis did make some serious errors in judgment in that year, 2018, especially in Chile. But anyway, he weathered the storm. Vigano has proven himself to be unreliable, untrustworthy. Hopefully the McCarrick report comes out. And anyway, so that collapsed. So basically, so the attempt to get him out ecclesiastically, failed. The attempt to drive him out 
through scandal failed. His health has been extremely good, as far as we can tell, for a man his age. And then during the coronavirus pandemic, he had that Irby at Orby address, and, and which resonated with even conservative Catholics. I think some people started giving him a second chance or resigning themselves to him, like, oh, we don't like him that much, but he's the Pope. But those who were still emotionally and intellectually and theologically determined to undermine him and take him down, I think they became really desperate. And I think this apocalypticism that you've been talking about, David, or that you've been writing about, I think that's the result. I think it's like, okay, God forbid, we're not wrong. We're absolutely right. We're, we'd never reconsider our position on the Pope. But plan A didn't work. Plan B didn't work. So maybe it's the end of the world and he's the false prophet. And it's sort of like, okay, this is our plan C. We'll just wait for the, you know, we'll wait for the illumination of conscience. I don't know. David, is that, does that speak to you at all? Yeah, there's a few things actually that I maybe want to address there because you brought up a lot of interesting points. First, you mentioned the the integralists, and I've been thinking a lot about integralism lately, and trying to just you know figure out what problem I have with it. And I and I realized this is another type of fundamentalism. It's very it's different from the fundamentalism of the traditionalists or the fundament, fundamentalism of uh, Vigano. Instead of wanting a kind of super strict and unchanging church, they want the church to impose its rules in a super strict and unchanging way upon society. And so they feel that the best way to do this is to maybe cultivate particular rulers. Some of them seem to think that, that Trump is one such person who can, through the use of executive powers and uh, other means of political or legal coercion, to force a sort of Catholic uh, state into being. And what makes it interesting is that a lot of the traditionalists have turned against Pope Francis, especially like Vigano is one of the most extreme examples. Many of the integralists have stuck with Pope Francis and have not shown too much, have not had much of a problem with Morris Laetitia or with the Amazon Synod or anything like that, because that's really not what they care about. They're not caring about doctrinal strictness. They're caring about the strictness of the authoritarian structure of the church from the Pope coming on down into, they see the society and how it's reflected in society. So it's fascinating because the old integralism was much more nationalistic. So it was attempts to create maybe a sort of clerical fascism within a particular uh, state. The new integralists, I think, are much more global in scope. They, they really think that the church is a global entity and therefore should rule on a sort of global level, should be the supreme political authority. So it, it can be very tricky. Like you think, oh, these people, are, they're on our side. They like Pope Francis. They're kind of, you know, they don't seem to be as hostile to um, let's say the church in Africa or the church in the Amazon or those kind of things. But they, that is because those things aren't really their concern. They, they want to see the church be global, but they want to see it rigorously, church teaching rigorously enforced through politics in a way that I think completely goes against 
Vatican II, it assumes that the church has all the answers to every political question, to every, everything that might arise in human life, and that if we only force people through law to behave a certain way, then everyone will be uh, happy. And because they think that the goal of politics should be to orient people towards their salvation, and this, their salvation has to come through the Catholic Church. It's, a, it's another kind of fundamentalism. It, it rejects the idea that the church can learn. It rejects the idea that the church, that there can be an interpenetration of the church and society that's not just the, the political being subservient to the spiritual. There can be a sort of back and forth, and you can have different political systems, you can have different cultures, you can even have human brotherhood and uh, human fraternity, like uh, Pope Francis likes to say, and ecumenical uh, relationships and interreligious dialogue and all these kinds of things. So it's a, they're, they're sort of rejecting that, thinking that what we need to do is just simply impose Catholicism on the world. And it's, even though they don't reject Pope Francis himself, they don't undermine his position uh, of authority as Pope, I think they've, they don't really understand Pope Francis or they don't, they're just using him as their sort of supreme uh, spiritual ruler. Um, he's almost like just a, a figurehead. And uh, they imagine somehow that he would actually be on board with any of this. And I, I can't imagine him being on board with it at all. I'm sure Pope Francis would like to see uh, a time somewhere in the future where the whole world is under the Catholic Church. But I think he realizes that's a very long process that has to involve genuine give and take and understanding. That's how, you know, ecumenism works. You have to learn from the other and in order to convince people of your position as well. So that's what integralism, I think, completely ignores. And it is a kind of desperation. I think it's people seeing the decline of uh, the church, uh, the authority of the church in public life, uh, and wanting to say, forget all this nonsense about trying to work politely in politics. Let's just figure out ways to impose Catholic doctrine. And Trump is maybe through Bill Barr uh, might become a sort of vehicle for that. Or they, they point to uh, Poland or places like that, where the, the church does seem to have uh, an, a real influence over the political sphere. But again, Poland is almost uniformly Catholic. It's not the United States. It's not Canada. They're not looking at the reality, I think, of the global situation. And yeah, the, the sort of new apocalypticism that we're seeing, this, and it really seems to be taking off. Yeah, I think it might be a sort of uh, sense of desperation. They realize that Pope Francis isn't going anywhere. The church is not going to change direction radically and go backwards and or they're not gonna it's not gonna do what Vigano wants it to do, which is just forget that the Second Vatican Council ever happened. So all they can hope for is some kind of cleansing fire that will <laughs> come down and purify everything. And that's I think that's what we're seeing in this new apocalypticism that you get with the countdown uh, to the kingdom site and the idea of the warning and the three days of darkness when demons will you know run across the world and and devour those who aren't uh, who don't have their sacred candles at the ready that sort of thing it's a fantasy i think and it might be like a sort of coping fantasy but yeah it's a serious problem and i think it is a sign of desperation
Um, you know, I'm curious, David, because I've seen people tweet about this stuff. Who are these new integralists? Who are they? I think the probably the the biggest one would be uh, Adrian Vermoul. Uh, uh, I believe I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He's a, a Harvard professor and a, a fairly recent Catholic convert, and he seems to have gone really full bore into uh, Catholicism. And he has tied it to the sort of new Trumpist conservatism, which rejects this idea that conservatives can piecemeal try to, say, argue for religious freedoms and piecemeal work to, let's say, fight abortion, that sort of thing. It rejects that in favor of a much more authoritarian approach and the idea that, that we should be perhaps instead trying to infiltrate or get into the institutions of government and of law in order to change them from the inside and implement Catholic teaching in a way that leaves people with no choice but to follow it. So they don't care about public opinion so much. They think that if you change the law, then people will change. Although I think history almost always shows that first public opinion changes and then the law tends to change. And it's very hard to fight against public opinion. And it's very hard to impose something on a population that, that rejects it without using coercion. But they don't seem to have any aversion to the idea of coercion. There's, a, there's also a, a priest named Father Edmund, and I forget his full name. I believe he's an Austrian a priest. And he's, I would say, the theological brains behind the new integralism. And I mean, he speaks in, in like the very abstract theological or theological political sort of language, which it, it all kind of sounds okay in the abstract. But when you actually realize, when you think about how this would be implemented in a, a real modern society, it becomes terrifying. You realize it would be a sort of like theocratic fascism. And that bothers me. I don't think that's the Christian way of doing things. I think the idea is that we should be changing hearts. We should be, you know, changing minds. We should be showing people through our example. We should be following the, what Pope Francis wants us to do, which is being sort of joyful Christians, living according to the teachings of the church and, and hoping that, that other people will follow. And then that might actually generate enough momentum for real social change. But I don't see a lot of that in integralism. I just see this idea that we have to manipulate the political system in order to implement uh, Catholic integralist goals. But yeah, I think uh, Vermeule would be the sort of legal theorist behind integralism. And he's a bit of a disciple of Carl Schmitt, who was a very influential, brilliant legal theorist from the 1920s and 30s in Germany. But he became a, a Nazi and he used his conception of the political and his conception of executive power to justify a lot of the things that Adolf Hitler was doing. So it's very worrying that you have someone who is taking this idea, this, Carl Schmitt happened to be Catholic, even though I think his, his ideas are fundamentally un-Catholic. I think it's, it is worrying that you have someone taking that sort of Schmittian framework, which was in real life was actually applied to the Nazi regime and used to justify it 
and then taking that and trying to apply it to Catholicism as if Pope Francis is some kind of supreme leader who, whose will uh, must be implemented. I, I, I find it not only dangerous, but just ridiculously impractical and I think ultimately out of touch with reality. <laughs> you know, it's ironic too, because Pope Francis advocates for the exact opposite that, of that in the Abu Dhabi human fraternity document, where he says that God wills the diversity of cultures and religions and, and so on and so forth, and talks about basically one human family that is unity in diversity with different languages, different religions, different nations. And now we're hearing that there's probably a papal encyclical coming out about human fraternity soon. All of this talk of integralism is un-Catholic because it contradicts the magisterium of the church. So I don't know who they would get to be the pope of their weird system. Is Vermeule advocating for the dissolution of the United States of America? Because the First Amendment and many other aspects of our fundamental constitution are incompatible with his vision, but especially the First Amendment. Well, part of, part of his legal theory is what he calls common good constitutionalism. But, and as I understand it, though, it's basically a rejection of constitutionalism as we know it and a replacement of the constitution with a kind of idea of the common good that would actually be derived from Catholic teaching. So I, I, it almost seems to me like he wants to replace the constitution with the catechism, right? And he probably is one of these people who, if you, if you ask him, if you question him directly, he won't answer. He's very cagey in that respect. But, and people have tried to do this, and there's been many articles written about him. He always rejects it. He says, oh, that's not what I'm trying to do. But in the end, it really seems like what he's trying to do. And you see it, he has associates like, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but Sorab uh, Amari who he's, I don't know if he considers himself full-on integralist, but he, he certainly is part of that sort of group. And when you see him, he's just a, a kind of raving authoritarian, I find. He's almost like this kind of bully who just wants to crush people. And he rejects, he had this famous dispute with David French, where he rejected what he called Frenchism. And Frenchism is this kind of conciliatory conservatism where you um, work within constitutional boundaries and like things that David French does, try to work on religious freedom issues and that sort of thing to try to stake out a place for Christians within a, a liberal society. But Sorab Amari thinks, no, you, you don't do any of that. You have to crush liberalism. You have to completely destroy it. It's the enemy that has to be annihilated completely or else there's no there's no point in in arguing so he he, only, he doesn't amari doesn't debate or discuss or, or anything like that he just he's just vicious and and mean basically and vermul is is much more he stays above that sort of thing but you can tell that he he sympathizes with it it's interesting because we're talking about these fantasy ideologies and sometimes they manifest themselves politically sometimes supernaturally liturgically people talking about rolling back vatican ii as if that's going to happen i remember a while back peter kwasniewski wrote uh, an essay arguing for why women shouldn't be allowed to do the readings at mass and it was this highly symbolic thing about how the person who proclaims the word represents represents 
the husband and the bride and the spousal relationship and therefore the word is the seed and the congregation is the is the receiver i mean you know some some really bizarre stuff like that and that kind of also goes into the women's suffrage right crisis magazine the their editor in chief michael warren davis on the anniversary the 100th anniversary of women having the vote in the united states he writes in this ostensibly catholic journal that women that the women's right to vote is like the single worst policy decision in the history of the United States. I wrote about it. I, I tweeted about it. I mean, it just blew my mind because no matter, I mean, even if, even if his arguments, first of all, there's no Catholic teaching against women voting, right? But then he's bringing up something that is never going to happen is enormously unpopular, which immediately turns him into a pariah. And really my question is, and, and he uses his, his Catholicism as, as the excuse, well, I'm Catholic, you know, I shouldn't care about what other people, well, no, you're not arguing about Catholicism. You're, you're, you're arguing about this issue that Catholicism doesn't agree with you on. And it's like, how does this aid evangelization like seriously ultimately it comes down to that if you're going to use your catholicism as your shield for to justify this how have you helped any evangelize anybody like it just makes the rest of us it, 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 to me it obligated me to stand up and say no this is not catholicism this is fringe anti-francis anti-vatican II, anti common good, anti-God's will. <laughs> this is not Catholicism. And I, I just, it just blows my mind. It's this thinking that has no grounding in common sense. Like, what's going to work? How are we going to proclaim the gospel? And this is just the opposite of that. At least that's the way it came off to me. Well, one of, the, one of the interesting things about that article was the way that the author Davis adopts all the sort of mannerisms of G.K. Chesterton and Belloc. It's almost like he's writing in 1910 with the same like sort of lingo and like it's so old fashioned and, and dated. And you can tell it's he's playing a role. He's like he's basically like acting almost um, living in a little sort of fantasy. And that's yeah, I don't think the goal is actually to change anything. I think it's to show that he's the so countercultural, so, you know, um, separated from our sort of normal everyday society. And I think in some ways, I think it's very good that you reacted to it and, and wrote against it. And I did as well on, on Twitter. But at the same time, I think he probably thrives off that a bit because he thinks, yeah, now I, I'm doing something right. I'm like, I'm being persecuted now. Everyone hates me. And there's a certain bizarre satisfaction, I think, that some people get out of that. But it's terrible for the church. It's living in a fantasy and getting sort of your thrills from just stating outrageous things that will make people angry and turning people away from the church, actually. Like, it's, it's actually like, 
extremely detrimental to the church, but it fulfills some kind of function for him, I'm sure, and for people like that, whether it's uh, insecurity or just a maybe they these kind of people only feel that they have an identity if they're being you know hated by other people. But it's it's a problem that it's not just with him, but it's with a lot of people in the church who just intentionally make these outrageous statements. Timothy Gordon and his brother they're, they're on this big anti-feminist kick where they rules for uh, retrogrades, yeah, where they're just being just intentionally um, offensive and I'd say they're being anti-PC or whatever. But again, it's a way of generating attention. It's a way of positioning themselves as interesting outsiders who are not just part of normal everyday culture. But I think a lot of the the work that we have to do as Catholics and, and a lot of the work that the church has to do is not as exciting. It's the, the hard work of trying to, you know, implement Catholic teaching in a very like slow and sometimes piecemeal way and trying to convert other people through through our own example in the way that we live our, our kind of ordinary daily lives and dealing with the world as it is in all its complexity and recognizing that. And I guess what Pope Francis has to do, he has to look at the whole global situation and figure out how the church fits into that and then be very careful with his language and, and very diplomatic and not just live in a fantasy world where he imagines everything going the way that he wants it to go. So yeah, it's a really bizarre thing. And I think, I don't know why we're seeing it right now so strongly, but we are. I think it might be a backlash because I, I, people who follow Pope Francis, we know his, his lines, right? His field hospital, uh, smell like the sheep, poor church for the poor, time is greater than space, which I'm still trying to figure out exactly what he means by that. But the one that keeps coming back to me over and over and over again as I dig deeper and see more of this disconnect is reality is greater than ideas because that is exactly what he is talking about what is the point of saying that the right to vote should be taken away from women what is the point of saying that women can't read at mass what is the point of saying that the mass of Paul VI, which 99% of practicing devout Catholics in the world go to, that's on its way out because the old right is better. What is the point of any of that? And then going even further and inventing apocalyptic scenarios when you've run out of, uh, when you've, you're finally faced with reality and the things that you think should happen, you realize have absolutely no chance of happening. I don't know, Adam, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, so I just say that these people are Catholic LARPers. They're doing live action role-playing, which is offensive and detrimental to the church. You said that, David, about he was pretending he was G.K. Chesterton or somebody. It's just a game to them. It's also a business. They get clicks, they make money this way it's a scam it's a fraud it's a sham so yeah it's unfortunate and you also see it with the anonymous trolls on twitter and stuff who have like medieval like crusader pictures and weird latin stuff or whatever and yeah it's just 
role playing. It's just like a way to have pretend you're like this knight templar who's fighting the forces of darkness in the deep state. I often am like wonder like I doubt like these Twitter people can they even go to mass? I doubt it, honestly. Um, yeah, I sometimes wonder that too. I, I really doubt it because it's wouldn't it be, being at mass be torturous for them? Maybe they would have access to an SSTX chapel or something, but most wouldn't. Um, they're not that common. So I just assume a lot of them probably don't go to Mass. I mean, I'm very serious when I say they're just role-playing. It's just a game. I and you, we're actually, well, I'm not trying to toot our own horn here, but we're trying to, like, do this work for the church with the website and the blogging and obviously my teaching with my students and publishing and theology. I don't know what the rest of these jokers are doing, but it's just a joke. Well, one interesting thing is I, I can actually, in some ways, relate to some of them because when I first got on Twitter, I can't remember when I started on Twitter, but it was maybe like 2012 or something like that. And I had a blog for a while that was anonymous. And when I was anonymous, I was much more radical in my thinking and much more willing to make statements that were potentially out there. And I, I got to admit, I had the integralist tendencies, like just thinking, this is what we need to do, and we should just impose it through whatever means necessary. And then later on, when I got involved with where Peter is, I'd softened a bit since then, but I, 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 I put my photo on my you know Twitter handle and, and my name and started publishing things under my name. And then things changed because all of a sudden you've got to deal with some of the consequences of the things you say. And it's not just about not wanting to get in trouble or, you know, it's, it's actually like, well, no, you realize that you're dealing, now you're dealing with real people in the real world. And when you realize that you're dealing with real people in the real world and you're not kind of living in the sort of anonymous fantasy, you start to see all the potential consequences of the things you're saying. And you have to be, then you have to be very careful. You realize that things are much more difficult than, and much more complicated than they seem when you're LARPing. So that's been a bit of a, a transformation. Uh, yeah, it's, it's my fault for drawing you out. No, thank you. Yeah, you, you refused to let me publish as a right scholar. So that's actually a good thing because that really helped. <laughs> I, and I've had people ask if they can contribute anonymously. And I mean, it's funny because you use the DW, which is the scholarly thing, but it's it's you, right? And And Pedro... Gabriel Gabriel is his middle name, but he's pretty easy to track down, like his last name, although he's got his doctor life and his his doctor life in Portuguese and his English speaking Catholic life. So it's a there's a little bit of a division there, but you know, he's not anonymous. It's his picture. And and so it's to me, it seems unless unless a cardinal or Pope Francis or somebody came to me and said, I want to write an anonymous letter. Okay, fine. <laughs> but there is something about having skin in the game. And the funny thing is, I don't think, I think, I, granted, probably in the last couple of months, I've been a little more bombastic than usual. I don't, I don't know why, but I we do. all have. Yeah. <laughs> and, and maybe that's just the nature of the, the season that we're in. But I, I, I watch myself and I'm not terribly, I mean, I, the thing is, it's like, so my article that was published in America, it's almost been two weeks now. Who knows when this podcast finally airs, how long it will have been. But I got some of the nastiest 
direct messages and emails, mostly from anonymous people. You know, I was expecting, I mean, so like a feather in my cap that I'm Michael Voris, the headliner of the Vortex. It was a big achievement for any Catholic, I think, to get there. But the sad thing is, he, he, I think his show broadcast on the Monday or Tuesday, and my, my article was published on a Thursday. And because of the letters that I had gotten and the notes I had gotten Friday and Saturday, which really, I mean, the, the level of personal hatred, and a couple of them were even like perverted. They don't know me. They don't know. Well, maybe they do. I don't know. They were anonymous. They would say basically, You've pissed on your mother's grave. You threw you threw her under the bus. You've made it all about you. Your mother thinks you're a disgrace now. She because you're, she knows the whole. You know, just or I'm sending my children to hell. But the funny, I mean, not the funny thing, but the the thing is. So I probably got in the end. Look back, and it's like eleven messages that really. Whereas the overall response was super positive, but our fallen nature, we focus on that. So Voris comes around and he basically, you know, I was a leftist and modernist and heretic. And I'm like, oh, I can handle that. <laughs> whatever. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Lay it on. Call me whatever Marxist. You can call me. He didn't call, I think he called someone else on the same episode, a homo heretic. He didn't use that one on me. He even said, God rest your soul, you know, about my mom. But the, but the thing that I experience was the people who weren't writing to engage me in ideas they were writing to be cruel to me and to hurt me but the fact that several of them were not anonymous several and they were writing with the same tone one of them actually basically trashed me on twitter he's not anonymous then he writes me a personal email that's four or five paragraphs long which is full of insults and then says, but of course, you probably don't want to engage me in dialogue. Well, that was the bait, and I went for it. And so I laid out, basically, if you or Adam were to ask me, why did you write this article? And I wrote a personal email to you, laying out my thought process, the things I struggled with, the things that I... So I'm writing to this guy. And then he wrote back the nastiest response. And it was like a stomach punch. I thought I could, I thought I could, I made myself vulnerable to this guy, basically saying it was difficult to write about my mother. I wanted to make sure I honored her. I had it reviewed by my siblings. I had it reviewed by like that kind of thing. And he wrote back and just this nasty, and I don't remember what the words were, but so he's a real person, right? I like, I know people who know him personally. And so my question is, how many of those trolls are actual real people? Part of me thinks, oh, it's like all the same guy. And he just got a list of Latin phrases and a bunch of crusader JPEGs. And he's just lined up a bunch, get blocked, and he comes back with another one. I, but then you get these people who are clearly real people. And, and all of us have engaged with real life trolls whose names are public. So I'm just like, concerned like these are real people that have real ideas i one of them the other day was so awful that i thought he was joking and i took a quick glance at his twitter profile and it was so ridiculously bad i was like surely it's a parody and so 
I responded to him as if it was and it wasn't. And it, I don't know. Do they need help? I don't know what to do. I guess just keep doing what we're doing. But it's like, there, there are real people behind it. I don't know if they go to church. I don't know if they're nice people in real life. I don't know if they have some sort of psychological or emotional things that they're, they're working through. There's one guy that, that David and I are pretty sure has about 20 or 30 personas that argue with each other and try to gin up controversy. So he's got like the atheist one and he's got like the hardcore Trumpist rad trad one. And then he's got the one that's like a fan of where Peter is. But then when he disagrees with where Peter is, the other personalities come in and pile on. I mean, it's, you know, so what a cast of characters, right? Are these different handles? Is yeah. that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, different handles. He's got atheist ones. He's got rad trad ones. He's got nicer ones. Yeah. He's yeah, like, I think they're all real people. I mean, I don't like when people say bots. You know, like, oh, they're just like Russian bots. Like, Russian bots was this thing in the last election, and that's a real phenomenon. But that's not what internet trolls are. I mean, they're, they're real people at keyboards. <laughs> My point is, I think with some of them, they're mostly disaffected young white men who may have recently converted to Catholicism or may not even have actually converted at all. And those, with some of those, I genuinely don't know if they have any Catholicism other than on the computer. I seriously believe that. Maybe I'm being silly, but that's what I think. But well, you're I mean, right, a lot of them are right. real and say terrible things, you know, and yeah, I mean, evil's real. These people on the internet, when we talk about radicalization, I, I really sort of wonder, because some of them seem troubled, right? And I, I don't. I don't know. I, well, I think of the whole insult thing. You know, you yeah. had like the insult community banned from Reddit and one guy killed some people, I think maybe in California. It was a few years ago. So this is like very real. Just a couple nights ago, this like 17-year-old white kid murdered two people and I think he's been arrested now. And he was like posting like Blue Lives Matter on Facebook or whatever and yeah, they're being radicalized through the internet, and some of them commit murder and other forms of violence. It's really annoying, to say the least, when the people that flame it on, public people, whoever they are, we could name a lot of people, and they take no responsibility for it. Obviously, they didn't make them do it, but they're complicit in murder. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, the these types, I guess, the the sort of always online, often young white male types who are, whether it's from boredom or a sense of inadequacy or whatever, develop these sort of reactionary fantasies. I think they can be found in a lot of different communities, but unfortunately, I think the church has become one community where that they've been attracted to. Some of it I know came out of the, I don't know if you've heard of the Gamergate. Um, sort of online war that <laughs> that happened, you know, way back. I think it was maybe like 2013 or so, where you had the uh, sort of these a lot of men's rights type people online who were going against the what they called the social justice warriors and that sort of thing. And, and it it developed into this kind of reactionary culture that then fed into there was a few of them like neo reaction, the alt right, and then. I think the sort of online Catholic traditionalism has become part of it. And 
that's what's driving a lot of this stuff. They're the ones who are flocking to Taylor Marshall or, or flocking to some of these guys who have been around forever, like uh, Michael Matt from The Remnant, and they're, they're just giving these guys this new audience they never had before. Um, yeah, that's go, exactly right. And it's super scary and upsetting. I read Kill All Normies, the book about Gamergate and the rise of the alt-right. It's super good, super illuminating. I even have a weird three-part series on my personal blog where I point out the connections between Gamergate and the anti-Star Wars people, the new Star Wars, and the anti-Francis people. Taylor Marshall is an anti-new Star Wars. He's tweeted about it a number of times. He called uh -huh. himself a Jedi Vacantist. It's real. The confluence of Gamergate, which that, that's how it started, and that's not a thing anymore, but it became the alt-right, and now Catholicism in its LARPing online version is part of it. And, and then it was, as, if, as if that's not bad enough, then there's Harvard professors promoting it. And it but it, at times I want to rip my hair out because it's such a horrifying appropriation of Catholicism but fascism isn't new, and the Catholic Church was often complicit with fascism in the past, as we know. So it's not totally shocking that people can come in and do this. It's just, I guess, the rest of us have the responsibility to fight back and to promote Vatican II and to promote Pope Francis. And I'm really, I hope this human fraternity document is, is really coming out, because I think it's probably going to be awesome. But yeah, it can be just uh, scary. And this is one of the dangers of the Pope Francis criticism, right? Because we say, like you're saying, to some degree, it's a game. I, the 1 Peter 5 people, I remember just the glee at how, the sort of the cloak and dagger of how we're going to get the secret document signed by a bunch of people and get it out, or the dubia, right? There are all these like ambushes against, everybody's got a manifesto or an open letter that and I don't know that the Pope has ever been bombarded in this way. It's totally anti-Catholic, totally disrespectful that they're doing this. And Stephen Walford in 20, I think early 2018, wrote his open letter to the four Dubia Cardinals. And he, he told me the story of how it came to him during Mass. He felt convicted that, that he needed to write this. And during prayer. And one of the passages that he's put in there, which I think I've quoted four or five times in On Where Peter Is and Things I've Written, is it's like, you know, your eminences, you may not be aware, but there are people, especially online, who look to you as role models. And they have taken it to satanic extremes. I'm not quoting, but he used the word satanic. He said, it's nothing short of satanic, what they're doing. And I was like, you sure you don't want to use demonic? And he's like, no, I'm using satanic. <laughs> I saw a draft. And he's like, every single word in there was chosen precisely. And, and that's the thing. It's like, oh, well, you know, healthy, healthy criticism of the Pope. is, a... And it's like, no, there's a progression. And it's, if you aren't calling out, if you aren't punching right or whatever, whatever the political term is, and, and that's the thing. It's, I know people who are very critical of Vigano. They're very critical of Taylor Marshall. But yeah, Cardinal Burke is off limits. Bishop Schneider is off limits. Peter Kwasniewski, off limits. And 
it's no this is all part of the same thing and they're feeding into the same monster and you can't pick and choose yeah you can pick and choose your battles but you can't ignore the fact that the people that you've just decided are they're immune that they're not really hurting things this kind of relates to the you know the criticism that um where Peter is sometimes gets the, you know, we, we focus so much on the sort of Catholic right. Why don't you go after all the, you know, crazy progressive Catholics who are out there like in Germany and, and, and places like that. And yeah, there, I mean, absolutely there are, there are some, but I don't think to me anyway, the sort of progressive Catholicism and the stuff that we see in Germany, this is something that's been going on for quite a long time, decades. And it's not that new. It's not even, in a way, it's not even all that interesting. What's happening on the right, I think, is something that's unprecedented, at least. I think the best point of comparison would maybe be like in the 1920s and 30s, like in places like France, you had the rise of Action Francaise, which was like a ultra-nationalist, ultra-Catholic sort of fascist uh, organization that really attracted a lot of young people, especially. And they were kind of using the church as a, a, a means of promoting this new fascism. Now, at that time, the church eventually stepped in the 1930s and, and condemned Action Francaise. But I don't know, maybe there'll come a time when the church will have to actually step in and, and take a stand on what's going on on the Catholic right. Because it's really like, I've never seen anything like this. You could... you. There's always been a Catholic right, um, like, you know, through the John Paul II era and Benedict era, but it was fairly predictable. It was the, the normal sort of conservative Catholic. And then there was the, the sort of out there traditionalists who had all the little newsletters and things like that. And, but now it's very different. It's something has is, is gone very wrong. So it's worrying and it's fascinating because it's new. It's something that we haven't really seen before. So I think that's a good justification anyway for, for focusing, you know, primarily on the Catholic right. This concludes this episode of Peter's Field Hospital. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you'd like to hear more, please consider becoming one of our Patreon sponsors by following one of the links on our webpage. On behalf of Adam Rasmussen and David Lafferty, I'd like to thank you for listening, and until next time, God bless and take care.